0: News, weather, traffic,
1: money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
0: So much discussion recently about UFOs. Maybe it was the balloons and all the questions that came with that. But it turns out that the hard work of actually looking for alien life out there is ongoing. But how? We were wondering, what is that research process like? And is there even... A definition about what life looks like out there. Well, Dr. Nestor Espinoza is with us now, an assistant astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute. Good morning. Good morning. How's everything going? Everything is good, thank you. You tell me because I'm so curious about your work. Like, do we have a definition of what life looks like when we are looking out into space? We have
2: some ideas. I mean, the main ideas that come up to us is the ones that we see on Earth. And the kind of signatures that appear in an atmosphere, for instance, due to life, we know what those are. And those are the ones that we're, you know, eventually aiming to detecting other planets orbiting other stars out there.
0: Okay. And what do we define that as?
2: Well, we define it as, you know, carbon-based uh, kind of life. Now, you know, many, many people always ask me, like, well, you know, Nestor, you're always looking for the same kind of life that you see here on Earth, but what about if there's other forms of life out there that don't, don't live off of carbon, which is what we know uh, that is life here on Earth? And the, the answer to that is that, that that kind of life we don't know. So we look for what we know for, which is what we see on Earth, which is carbon-based life, and it's, you know, it's products on the atmosphere.
0: Right. How, what are you? What is? What are the signs out there? Then, like, what? What are the signals? What is? What are the signatures out there that you look for when you're examining deep space? Right.
2: Yeah. So, uh, what happens is that we know these fingerprints of these particular molecules that we know uh, are produced, hard to to life. Uh, for instance, methane is a big uh, element out there that we know the amount of methane that we have in the atmosphere on Earth. We know a bunch of it is due to life. Uh, we know that some, uh, the, the oxygen that we have on Earth combined with this, this signature of methane together, it might make up of what we were, what would indicate maybe life out there. So if we find those molecules in pair out there, maybe that would hint at us, uh, that, hint us like, that life might be in other planets. But quite frankly, uh, the atmosphere of the Earth has changed so much over time. You know, we had the dinosaurs in the past. Then, you know, the huge meteor you know, crash on Earth and that changed the atmosphere. So we know atmosphere also change. It's also a little bit complicated to just look at these molecules in the data and, you know, me screaming like, this is life. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But those are, you know, two of the molecules that we're hardly looking for, methane, uh, oxygen, and also carbon dioxide, which we don't like too much here on Earth due to global warming, but still looking for it out there.
0: And do we have instruments that can, that can do that? Like, what does this?
2: Yeah. So we have instruments that are capable of detecting some of these constituents that I just told you about in, in other planets. Um, right now, the most powerful instrument that we have to make those detections of, you know, if these planets even have atmospheres out there, is the James Webb Space Telescope, a telescope that I work with day to day. And this telescope actually can can actually detect part of these molecules in other in other planets. Um, and this is what we're actually using to start this search for atmospheres around other Earth, uh, which is super exciting. You know, it's a very exciting time to be alive, you know, science meets science fiction.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. How far away are we talking about here? Yeah, we're talking
2: Well, you know, when you ask distances to us astronomers, you don't have to take our word for it because we will tell you. It's nearby. It's nearby in the cosmic environment. Um, The closest Earth-sized planet that we know of to Earth, it's only four light years away, and to us, that's very close. To give you an idea, one light year is the distance that light travels in one year. It might sound like kind of fussy because I'm calling it light years. It sounds like time, but it's not a measure of time; it's a measure of distance. The closest planet to us that it's Earth-sized that we we know that it might be habitable uh it's only four light years away. In cosmic distance, that's like the average distance between stars. So it's pretty close. It's our it's our stellar neighbor. But now if you want to travel there, well bad news, like you can go on vacation there many soon because we don't have such fast, you know, spacecraft to travel up there in like human years.
0: <laughs> do scientists agree on what constitutes life on another planet? Is there do, are we all looking for the same thing?
2: That's an excellent question. Um, I think the broad strokes of what life signatures might be could be that we somehow agree on some of the broad details of what the signatures would look like. But when you go into little details, like is this life or maybe some chemistry that we're missing that we don't know of, then that gets complicated. We recently had an example here in our own solar system with Venus. There was a detection of phosphine a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Some people claim that it must be life. Some other people claim that, well, maybe it's chemistry that we don't know of. I mean, there has been some discussion on this. and This is what the search for life will look like forever, basically. It's always going to be a debate. It's always going to be scientists going, going back to the, the white blackboard, trying to figure out if what we're seeing really screaming life or it's something else that we don't know of.
0: Hmm. How how close are we, do you think? With all this work going on, is there the possibility that in the next few years we would detect something?
2: The reality of things is that right now we're trying to answer the most basic answer, which is, like, do these planets, Earth-sized planets around other stars, have atmospheres at all? There's many processes that that can break your atmosphere. And we're trying to figure out if they have atmospheres. That's the first step. And that step we can answer, I think. That step we can answer between, like, the next five to ten years. Now, if there's life on those planets that's a little bit more complicated, it's gonna take us a little bit more. Even with the whole technology that the James Webb Space Telescope has, it's gonna be very difficult for the instruments onboarded like to detect this life that I'm telling you about. But we already have plans. We already have plans for the next big telescope that's gonna come in the 2040s, 2050s. The Habitable World Observatory, And right now, you know, as a whole of humanity. If
0: that comes online,
2: That can be your card to tell us if, you know, life is really out there or not.
0: Wow, but that's 20 years away. Well, in
2: human years, that's not that much, right? (laughs) Our our children can make use of these instruments and, you know, tell us the answer when we're retired. So that sounds like a good deal to me if if you're trying to find life. It's a huge, huge, huge question that, you know, I having the possibility of hearing an answer to that within my lifetime, that's a price that I'm I'm totally committed to pay.
0: That's so fascinating. So the work is already being done on that. So the James Webb Telescope, how long was the planning for that to even put that up? Ooh,
2: that was planning started in the started like a little bit before the early 90s. So we're talking about more than 30 years in the making and here we are. We have this telescope on sky and we're exploring the universe with it. An exciting time to be alive
0: again. Amazing. Dr. Espinoza. thank you.
2: No, thank you very much. Have a wonderful day.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great
3: because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the
0: day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. this is Mornings with Simi. It is back to work in Ottawa this morning as MPs return to Parliament Hill, and it sounds like there is plenty of work to do. So joining us now is our Global National Chief Political Correspondent, David Aiken. Good morning, David.
4: Hey, good morning, Simi. How are you doing?
0: I am good, thank you. So what are they going to get down to work today on? I know that foreign election interference has been a big deal.
4: That, that is a big deal, and it is going to be, be, be a big deal this week. Last week, there was some MPs at work here on the Hill, members of the House of Commons Procedure and House Affairs Committee, and uh, they heard from national security officials about alleged election interference. They talked a lot about the reporting that we have done, Global News has done. We've reported, based on some CSIS documents, that uh, there appears to have been some interference, at least in some nomination races, involving some uh, at least one Liberal MP. So they were talking about that, and they came out of those committee meetings last week uh, by passing a motion that says hey, we ought to have a public inquiry, an independent public inquiry into these matters. Conservatives voted for it. The Bloc Québécois voted for it. The Liberals voted against. Where's been the prime minister on this? Well, we have asked him about this all week last week. I think he was out in B.C. with uh, Premier Uh Eby. last week. We asked him about it then. Um, And he he has not ruled it out. But when you ask him about it, he sort of talks around uh, the question. He says his government is already doing many things to address this issue. There are a couple of parliamentary committees, like really two of them, that uh, have the ability to investigate this stuff. An independent process co- uh, concluded last week that looked at the 2021 election. Our security agencies are meeting once a month on the issue of election interference. So he says there's lots going on, um, but he's really more of uh, you know, an inquiry if necessary, but not necessarily an inquiry. That's the PM. Um, that said, we're going to hear from uh, both... Um, Uh, Opposition leader uh, Pierre Paulyev, he's got a press conference this morning. So does NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Um, Again, their parties want an inquiry. Big question for Singh is, do you want an inquiry so badly that you will threaten to bring down the government and force an election? Because, of course, right now the NDP and Liberals have a deal in which the NDP are supporting the Liberals uh, um, so long as the NDP gets some progress on housing and pharmacare, etc., Will meet Singh now add in a public inquiry on election interference? That He's going to get asked that for sure for sure today. On the weekend, he said uh, sort of he, he couldn't say one way or the other, but it's on the table, and that's interesting as well.
0: Okay, so what else are you keeping an eye on? Well, you
4: know, committees are where it's at. Committees where the heavy lifting happens on Parliament Hill, not so much the House of Commons. It's committee work, and my gosh, the committee uh, agenda is packed. Uh, up in a, about an hour and a half, Execs from Google Canada are going to get grilled because Google right now is limiting uh, sort of what news content is on its site for some, and I want to stress some Canadian users. Google took this measure because it is unhappy with pending legislation uh, from the federal government that would force Google, Facebook, other big tech companies to transfer hundreds of millions of dollars to Canadian news organizations, including global, um, for the essentially publishing links to those news organizations. So it's a showdown between Google and the government. MPs going to grill Google on that. Later today, Justice Minister at, David Lametti's is at the Justice Committee talking about bail reform. A lot of MPs want changes to the rules on bail. We've had some high-profile incidents of people out on bail, uh, allegedly committing crimes, including here in Ontario, a police officer was killed by an individual out on bail. Uh, so that's this afternoon. What about the high price of food? We're all complaining about that. Well, yeah. you know what? The CEOs of some of our biggest grocery store chains, they've been called in front of the Agriculture Committee. They're going to get grilled about food price inflation. Look for that. Loblaws, Sobeys, Metro, they're all going to be on the, on the hot seat. And then tomorrow, the defense minister, Anita Anand, is in front of the defense committee to talk about that Chinese spy balloon. Yes, that is still a thing. Jimmy. Huh. the Chinese spy <laughs> balloon tomorrow. <laughs> so lots going on. You're
0: right. You're right. Committees are where it's at. David, thank you for that.
4: No problem, Simi. Cheers.
0: Have a great day. That's David Aiken, our chief political correspondent for Global News. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, though, we are going to talk about how the pandemic, well, changed a lot of things, right? Including what students are majoring in at post-secondary institutions. Now, to be fair, this was a trend that had started before the pandemic, but it's really been accelerated. I was reading a fascinating story on the weekend in The New Yorker about how in the United States, students enrolling in the humanities, such as having an English major or a history major, are on a steep decline, while more and more students are choosing a field in STEM. Even if they feel like, oh, they would enjoy studying English more, or they would enjoy studying history, they're making practical decisions about instead majoring in a STEM field. So it made us wonder, is that happening here in Canada too? And if so, why? Well, joining us now is Dr. Erin Weinberg, who's an instructor of English Literature, Film and Media at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Weinberg, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, is this a trend that you've noticed? Um, I can't speak to numbers, but I think it comes down
5: to this idea about student debt, that students are already thinking about what job can I take on after university that will allow me to pay for university. Um, So they're not making the same decisions that they would make if, you know, I, I like to think if education were free, what would people study
0: Right. So they're deciding that I have to pay for all this afterwards. And yet it's interesting. I've talked to many, you know, heads of tech companies who tell me they like students who've graduated from the humanities because it's teaching them critical thinking skills. But that message must not be getting through.
5: No, there's, I think articles like these lead to a devaluation in um, in what the humanities do, that it builds skills, um, one of my colleagues, Brandy K. Adams, she was interviewed and she was interviewed talking about getting rid of Jane Austen's persuasion in her course. And that's because you can. It's not just it's, it's not about chucking out canonical texts. It's about saying, what do the students want to learn so that they can learn the skills of studying literature, which is deep, patient analysis.
0: Right. What's it like teaching literature these days?
5: Hard. Um, in my university, I teach a lot of first year courses that are mandatory writing credits. It's great that students need to take mandatory writing credits, but there's definitely a decline in the full year writing course. Students are just trying to enroll in a half year to get the credit, but there'd be a lot more. Um, progress in their skills their reading and writing and critical thinking skills if they stuck around for a year or for longer
0: really so what are you seeing students who just they want to take shortcuts right they want to get through this as quickly as possible
5: um yes but it's not because they don't want to work hard it's just that there's such a there's so much stress and fear about earning money in the future you know 40 years ago rent didn't cost what it costs today
0: that is very, very true. So, what have you noticed about students in terms of their attitude towards learning about literature?
5: Um, some students are really enthusiastic. Some students are less so. And maybe that's because they, you know, they weren't lit with the spark of loving to read when they were younger. Um, and that's, that's okay. Sometimes it's a matter of, Finding exciting things to teach. So next year I'm teaching a course called Shakespeare and the Golden Age of the Teen Movie. So we're going to talk about uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio, Romeo and Juliet and 10 Things I Hate About You. And I think they'll be excited to take it. And when they can be excited, then they'll think deeper and be more dedicated to not just writing an essay, but revising it, you know,
0: going deeper. I would take that class, first of all. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're welcome. Also, I was thinking, you know, so many times today, you see this on social media, there's, you know, people of a generation who don't realize how many modern day stories are actually based on something like Shakespeare. Like, are we losing that connection, do you think, because there is this obsession with learning about technology and learning about all these STEM issues?
5: You know, I think STEM is a really important, but the thing about Shakespeare is that it is hard. That like what you're doing with Shakespeare is learning how to problem solve, how to grapple with something, just like how you would grapple with a math equation until you figure it out. Shakespeare takes grappling with, it takes patience. And I think that there's a lot of desire for, um, I don't want to say instant gratification, but instant return on investment. Again, because we live in a world of capitalism, things cost money. People have to do side hustles. That's really scary. So pragmatism is really a matter of doing what one has to do to exist in a capitalist world. Like Vancouver is expensive. You know, people can't yes. make the same decisions in Vancouver when they need to pay the bills.
0: Like what struck me in this article as well is that there were students who clearly said they would prefer to do an English degree. They would love to because they love literature and they love to read, but they were not making that conscious choice. And I thought that was kind of sad. What about you?
5: Oh, yeah, it's definitely sad. Um We have a lot of fun in English courses. Um, I hope people will take more courses, but I think that this is a big PR issue, right? Um, And it shouldn't have to come down to a PR issue. I think that um, the way things are going, um, the human mind is being reduced to a money-making machine and that's a shame because there's a lot to think about. And when we think about things, we can start advocating for change.
0: Yeah, what do you mean by it's a PR issue? Do you think the humanities has to sell itself better?
5: Um, I don't think it's, like, I think that neoliberalism is a problem and neoliberalism is universities having to sell, sell themselves, that faculty have to be entrepreneurs and create sexy courses. You know, like, why is it our job to sell this? Um, Why is it our job to sell the university as a training experience when it's not a training experience? It's an opportunity for students to learn more, to individuate, individuate from their families, you know, to say not what do I want to be, but what kind of person
0: do I want to be? That takes time. Yeah, it does take time. So what would you say then, Dr. Weinberg, to, you know, potential students out there who are in high school or to their parents? it's worth it. It is
5: worth it. Because it's not just about reading Shakespeare and Jane Austen, it's about communication skills. And we can't undervalue um, the ability to take ideas that are in your head and to turn those into cogent thoughts, cogent paragraphs, cogent proposals. That Those are skills that are necessary, not just for work, but to basically just express ourselves as human beings. And that's important.
0: Right. And to make sure they do that themselves and not have, say, ChatGPT GPT do it for them. That's
5: exactly right.
0: <laughs> you must have to deal with that, too, don't you?
5: It's a source of great anxiety to me because I want to mark my, teach my students in good faith and mark my students in good faith. And I really don't want to be spending my time being suspicious of them. I just genuinely want to believe that they're there to learn, but when marks equal money and when everything comes down to these bottom lines, then that drives students to um violate academic integrity and that's that's a shame. But I think that's um students are driven to do that out of desperation. They're not it's not nefarious, they're just scared.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Dr. Weinberg, thanks for your time this morning.
5: Thank you so much for
0: having me. That's Dr. Aaron Weinberg, an instructor of English Literature, Film and Media at the University of Manitoba. We're talking about this article. A lot of people read this over the weekend. It was in The New Yorker about essentially the, the death of the humanities at, at the post-secondary level. And they talk specifically about the United States, but it is a trend that North America is seeing where the value of just learning something about critical thinking and literature and all of that is people don't feel like it's a money-making initiative enough for them, so they're choosing other fields. But Dr. Weinberg makes some good points there. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.
6: If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: This is Mornings with Simmy. Right now, we're going to talk about your family doctor. It's hard to find one, right? We know that what, like how many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of British Columbians are without a family doctor. And if you have a family doctor and you have that relationship, well, it means that you can, I think, monitor your health more effectively. Maybe you don't end up in the emergency room. Maybe you don't end up waiting in a hospital to get care. So the way to get more family doctors in the system was to establish this new Uh, physician payment model. And that was a big announcement uh, from the doctors in this province and the provincial government not that long ago. And now we've got an update on sort of how the transition to this new payment model is going. So let's talk to Dr. Joshua Gregain, who's president of Doctors of BC. Thank you for being with us.
6: Thank you for having me, Jimmy.
0: So, So how is it going? Are doctors signing up for this?
6: Yeah, so we announced on February 1st, so we're just over a month in, and we've had nearly 50% of the family physicians in this province sign up. So we're feeling like it's gone pretty well.
0: Okay, so how how does this work then? What does this change for doctors?
6: So I think the big thing that it changes is how we value our family physicians specifically and what they're able to do with their time both seeing patients and then, as you mentioned earlier, when you see your family physician, that's just one of the bits and pieces. The other bit is, again, doing all of the other things like charts and labs and x-rays to try and review. And so how we pay our family physicians made a difference, which we expect is then going to draw more people into family medicine, which we expect is going to try and give patients better access to care going forward.
0: Do we... Do we have any evidence yet that this is attracting more people to family, you know, physicians?
6: Absolutely. So again, we're only five weeks in, so you know it's hard to get all of the answers. But what we've heard uh, anecdotally is people are now joining practices or starting to look at taking on panels of patients in communities that they hadn't before. As well, we know that there's about 150 physicians who last year were not doing family medicine who have registered for this model, which, again, we think is a great way to have started this process.
0: Wow. So does that mean those are those will be new family doctors added to the system?
6: So they've been new family doctors that have either not been doing Italian medicine before or are new to the province, have never been registered, what we call MSP previously. And so we're quite optimistic that, again, you know, people are joining the system. We don't yet have exactly how many numbers of patients they've taken on, but we know that there's momentum going the right direction.
0: Well, Dr. Green, I was going to say, even every little bit counts, right? That's a pretty impressive number. That's like 150 new doctors,
6: Absolutely. And again, we don't know all of their specifics, where exactly they came from, what exactly they are doing. But for a long time, there's been a lot of negativity and heartbreak, both from physicians and patients around family practice. And we think because of this new model that we built alongside an entity called BC Family Doctors, the Doctors at BC and the Ministry of Health, that we've gotten this, I think, right by evidence that 50% almost have joined up and there's new doctors coming into the province and back to family medicine.
0: I remember that we were also hearing from a lot of doctors who were feeling stressed out. They were overwhelmed and they were stepping back from family practice because of that. Do you think this helps with that too?
6: So we we've, we've, are fairly confident that people who are considering leaving and doing something else have slowed down or have removed those thoughts. What I've really appreciated is some of my friends who are family physicians or colleagues who I went to residency with or in training have written me personally and said, This has given me joy again in my job. You know, this has given me a, a chance to really look after people the way that I want to. And not only has taken it away sort of despair and sorrow, it's given them some hope going forward, which we know is so critically important to their well-being, but also to the future of this profession and how we share with our younger doctors who are coming up and to do this kind of work.
0: All right. What, what was the key here, do you think, Dr. Gray? Like, that is a, a serious difference in how people are feeling about taking this on as a living. So what What do you think was key to making that happen?
6: Uh, I'll use three words to me, some of which are, you know, are maybe a little bit controversial, but Advocacy was the first one. I think when when BC Healthcare matters and some of the public started to say this is no longer acceptable in primary care, we really sat and listened to people. We really listened and we engaged with, that's my second word, with the family physicians and the public around what was going on. And so we really tried to do our best to listen and pay attention about what the hot topics were. And then finally, I think we got it right in collaboration with the Ministry of Health And I'll give some credit to, again, Minister Dix and Stephen Brown, the Deputy Minister, that they really paid attention to what the doctors were saying and built this model together. And so when we advocate, when we engage, and when we collaborate, it makes a big difference for the people that are making the province of British Columbia a great place to be and work.
0: How long of a difference, or how long do you think it'll take for us to be able to feel the difference in the system? As we were saying, like, if you can get more people at the primary point that they don't have to get to the emergency point, that relieves the whole system. But how long do you think before we can see some of that?
6: It's really challenging to know the answer to that. I think in some small areas, we'll see some differences right away. Uh, You know, over the rest of the the time, it's going to be difficult to know exactly what that is. Obviously, things like the emergency room or surgical wait times are not exactly one-to-one a cause of primary care, but I believe and we believe that as we shift the momentum forward, people are going to come and do what we need them to do to help provide care and access the British Columbians, and things are going to start to shift. I'm hoping as soon as this spring, but to try and reverse 20 years of of you know inequity in family medicine is not going to be immediate, but I'm optimistic that we've turned the corner, we're going the right direction, and that people will start to feel like this is a better thing to do, both as physicians, but ultimately, as patients that we serve in British Columbia,
0: wow, this is actually so nice to hear because we don't we don't often get to hear that kind of optimism about our healthcare system, um, Doctor. There's another step coming, right? I understand this summer is the there's a new system coming so that people who need a family doctor will get some help to find one.
6: Yeah, so that system has started in pockets of this province where if you're a patient who we call unattached or don't have a family physician or a practitioner, you can register, and that's called, I believe that's called the health uh, registry. And so what we're doing this spring is asking, asking family physicians to sort of say, how many patients do you have in your panel, which is the group of people that a physician looks after based on how many days a week you work, et cetera. And then there's the expectation that this summer, really, we start to be able to match those together to say, you know, we know that there are X number of people who are unattached in the South Island area and we have some capacity in particular family positions or offices and so it will be a slow process it won't be as of July 1st everyone gets to do exactly what they want from a family position perspective but we again are optimistic we're moving in the right directions because of the work that we've done over the last year.
0: Well that sounds like it's going to be quite remarkable I guess this is new for doctors though having to actually almost do a head count right of your patients?
6: <laughs> yeah that's a good example yeah it's- It's really trying to establish who is your patient and who are you looking after and where do you seek longitudinal care or ongoing family practice care. And so other systems in the world will call it something like a panel or a roster. And so we're just trying to ensure that we get the information right to be able to then say hey we really need more work here we know that the future of family medicine and medicine in general is not just about doctors there's lots of opportunity to add things you know and continue to invest in nurse practitioners and pharmacists and physician assistants and associate physicians and nurses in practice and all sorts of things but we want to be sure we have the right information we are a profession that relies on data or evidence to move the needle forward and so we want to continue to make sure that we have the right information that
0: uh, we need. Doctor, thank you so much for being with us this morning.
6: You're very welcome. Have a great day.
0: You too. Dr. Joshua gregain president of Doctors of BC with some promising, just some, Hope, optimism, some promising news about our healthcare system. And if you're trying to find a family doctor, now that website he talked about, it's healthlinkbc.ca. You can just Google the words Health Connect Registry BC and you can see if your community is signed up for this. If you need a family doctor, this is the place where you go and you put your name down and then maybe you can get some help connecting with one. The big change happens this summer, but it does sound like the start of something good, doesn't it? This is Mornings with Simi. You get a robocall on an election day telling you to... Go to a different polling station than the one you thought. That's disinformation, right? Question is, should there be more accountability for tracking down who is responsible? It's the kind of election, let's say, shenanigans that seem to have been around for a long time. But there is new proposed legislation uh, that will hopefully address some of this. But how will it actually work? And where are the lines on this? Well, joining us now to talk more about it is Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General of BC. Thank you for joining us this morning.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Well, first off, what was the impetus for this legislation?
1: Well, uh, in B.C., we're constantly looking at elections and trying to improve the process. And we've been doing that as a government over the last few years. And this is from a report that the chief electoral officer issued to us in 2020 that was about disinformation. And and we took a look at that report and, and are creating these amendments, to the Election Act, in response to that.
0: OK, were there specific incidents that were of concern? Um,
1: I think generally there's been, and everybody's seen this in their communities, a rise of disinformation across the world. And and of course, with like digital platforms, it's way easier to spread disinformation than impacts. Um, So really the chief electoral office report was about basically global trends when it comes to this stuff and how we need to respond to that in BC.
0: Okay. So what will the legislation do?
1: Um, So it, it attacks disinformation kind of on three fronts. So first of all, if you're a candidate, and you're spreading um, disinformation about where you were born, your citizenship, um, membership to an association, your qualifications, or if you're an individual organization that's doing the same thing. But also, as you mentioned at the top, that w- the disinformation that comes into play that's about, like, getting in between people's ability to vote, so telling them the wrong information about a polling booth, telling them the wrong hours, just deliberate attempts to interfere with people's Ability to vote. So it kind of attacks dis- disinformation on all of those fronts.
0: So, was this a loophole, do you think, before? And, and so, will this now give authorities the power to, to go after that?
1: That's right. So, if the, if the changes get passed, the chief electoral officer will have some pretty strong um, powers to go after this. And that includes fines for people up to $20,000 for individual organizations, but also digital platforms. So, if you don't take down the content, uh, so we could attack it quickly. Um, it's up to 50,000 a day um, for those fines. So it's really to send a message to people out there that we care about the integrity of our elections and that if you are there to interfere with that on purpose, that we're we're going to take action.
0: So how do you define, I guess, disinformation on that? Like, will this impact political parties who, you know, will say things about another policy on the other side? And, And so, like, where do you draw the line on that?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a really important line because as
0: we know that
1: elections are a time of debate, of ideas and perspectives. And and so where we really um, drew the line was from um, advice from the chief electoral officer. So really clear things that we know are wrong, whether it's the location of a polling booth, whether somebody has certain qualifications or not, whether they have a criminal record or not, what their place of birth, and you certainly saw that. Um, the birth or claims in the States with Trump and Obama. So it was, uh, you can't lie about somebody's place of birth or citizenship. So those kind of ways that we can say when go in that are very clearly wrong and are there to impact um, the results of election. But of course there's going to be different perspectives and different points of views on many different things in an election. And we need that. And we, and we were not, we're not going to step in in that, in that, in that.
0: Right. So it's not going to be like, you can use it as a fact check against your opponent.
1: No, I, that that's not the intent of it. It's for it's for those specific areas where we know um, it's a lie and it's, it's, it's going to impact the election, but it's something that's objectively wrong.
0: So does this give then Elections BC to beef up their powers in going after these instances?
1: That's right. The chief electoral officer can issue fines and, and take down orders and really has way more tools if the, these amendments pass to actually circle around this behavior and put an end to it. So we know that uh, British Columbia can continue to trust the integrity of our electoral process and, and know that we're preventing people from interfering in that way.
0: It's tough to sometimes find out, though, who is behind these things, isn't it? And does this also apply on the municipal level? Anything, I guess, having to do with elections B.C.?
1: Well, well this, is, this is focused on um, provincial level elections, but of course, like the chief electoral officer powers can go into different elections in the province in various ways. Um, and, you know, it, it can be hard to figure out who's doing things, but we know that organizations and individuals are covered by these amendments. So the chief electoral officer can look at um, any individual organizations that are doing this conduct, that are perpetuating this stuff with the intent to interfere in the election. Um, and really investigate and go after those people.
0: I also, while, while I have you this morning, I also wanted to ask you about, I think, an announcement you've got coming up, which is the Intimate Images Protection Act. What will this involve?
1: Um, well, the details will be announced um, this afternoon. I'm really happy to come back on, Simi, and talk to you about it once we do that. But really, it's about... Um, it's about taking action when it comes to the non-consensual. So without people's consent, the distribution of intimate images.
0: And that's been a long process, hasn't it? Like, I know there's been a public consultation process for this.
1: Yeah, we wanted to do it right. And we wanted to talk to all the people that are are involved in the space or impacted by the space to make sure that we did. So today's announcement will really go through what I believe is a really robust process that really protects victims.
0: So, the disinformation and even the intimate images acts, then, are these, is BC doing catch up on these? Are there other jurisdictions that have already done work in this regard?
1: Um, well, we're always trying to improve our processes in B.C., and sometimes that is learning from other jurisdictions and what they're doing, but uh, what you'll see in the announcement today is that we've gone um, above and beyond any other jurisdictions when it comes to how we're tackling this in B.C., and with the disinformation, I believe we're amongst the leader- leaders in making sure that our, our uh, legislation is, um, has the power, our elections have the power to, to go after disinformation.
0: Right, and so the disinformation then is very—is it quite specific? So, if you try to interfere in the electoral process in some way,
1: with the intent of doing so, yes, so not, but also just spreading disinformation about candidates or uh, their association, and all those categories that I talked about before, with the intent of in- impacting the election.
0: Interesting. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Oh, well, it's great to be here. And let, invite me back anytime if you want to talk about the announcement today. I'm happy to come And on. you know we will. Thank you for Thank you. that. <laughs> That's Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General of BC, talking about election disinformation. They have another announcement coming up later today having to do with um, sextortion, the Intimate Images Protection Act. But when it comes to disinformation, it's interesting. So they're trying to crack down on the spread of deliberate disinformation about the electoral process. So things like um, you know, disinformation about voting eligibility or dates, times, locations, things like that. So, you know, misleading people about where they can vote, how they can vote, when to vote, that kind of thing, which has been happening, right, in recent elections. So this gives um, Elections BC, the chief electoral officer, the power to crack down on that. It'll be interesting to see this one in action for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Private information. Private information. And how much of it your employer has stored on its computer systems? What happens when you quit? How safe is that private information? Now, these are all questions that current and former uh, employees of the bookseller Indigo are dealing with right now. More than a month after that company was hit by a cyber ransom attack, Turns out employees of the company are the ones with their information at risk. Not that the company has said much about this publicly. And believe me, we have tried to talk to them about what is going on. But you know what? Employees and former employees are finding out too. One of them joins us now. It's Marcus Grupp, who's the former director of experience design at Indigo and the current vice president and head of design and innovation at Syrian Labs. Marcus, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: How did you find out about what was going on at Indigo?
3: Um, initially, a lot of former colleagues and I—we had, we had seen when the website went down. You know, we were—we're we're still big fans. We still shop there. So we, as soon as we saw the blue screen that pop up on the website, we knew something was up. And then when that extended for a couple of weeks, there was a lot of messages going back and forth. Everyone was trying to figure out what's happening, what's what's going on here. And then the, the new—I you know, think the news reports and, and Indigo had actually re- released that there was a. A cyber attack that had happened. We didn't actually find out until two Fridays ago that employee data was actually impacted. And that's when we, or two two Thursdays ago, we got an email from Indigo outlining that some critical data had been had been released in that, and it may actually be released into the dark web.
0: Okay, and that's information about you, but you haven't worked there for like five years.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's been uh, mid 2018.
0: And so what kind of information? Are we somebody that, like, people could buy information about you?
3: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So they, they let us know that everything from my name, email address, phone number, date of birth, home address, but social insurance number was a really troubling one, as well as all of our banking details for any of the direct deposit information that we had had with payroll.
0: That's a scary amount of information, isn't it, Marcus?
3: Especially the SIN number. I think the, the bank... The bank was a hassle. You have to go and get changed over. But the SIN number is the one that there's just nothing. And as, as you know, myself and other employees were digging into it, there actually are there is really no way to protect that once that's out there.
0: And so what kind of questions did you have then after hearing about this?
3: Um, there, there's a lot. I think initially it was, confusing. it was confusing because like, you know, five years on, why is this information still there? Um, then there was a question like, what is, what are the actual laws? What are the, the rules for retaining data? And I think as we started digging into it, myself and other colleagues, our former colleagues, we saw that there really aren't any real standards across Canada. It varies from province to province. In Ontario, um, certain data is you know three to five years, depending on what the data is. But there really is no clear um, understood policy that I think for, for anyone who is an employee who's maybe not be a specialist to really understand why that's retained. And then also you know, realizing you know, we focus a lot on customer privacy, customer data privacy, which is important, it, it almost begs the question, what's the, you know, are we doing the same amount of like, security? Are we focusing on the same number, amount of compliance for employee data? Because it's actually maybe even more troubling if your SIN numbers out there, something which would likely not be in your customer
0: file. Yeah, I was thinking. You know, I've never thought about that about companies that I used to work for. What did they do with all my information? Are there any rules about this?
3: Um, there aren't real. Like there, there are there are retention rules around what needs to be kept, but it's really murky. And, and to be honest, I'm not an expert. But even from the the, the, the digging I've been doing the last ten days or so, there really aren't any standards around what needs to be comp- compliant with. So what, what is the, what's the the quality of the security system uh, the systems are in place to actually use, house that data, what's the controls on those systems so not everyone has access what what are the retention rules? you know when when is that data purged? how's that purged? Is it a permanent purge? How's that done? So there really isn't a whole lot of clarity on what that what that actually is.
0: What do you think we should be doing with this kind of information?
3: Um, I, I think there's a couple things. I think one, you know, the first and foremost thing, like if, from my perspective, guiding principle would be very much treating that employee data to the same standards as customer data. I think we, we, you know, we know that there's lots of rules in place for customer data. Let's have the same for employee data. I think the other thing is when you actually leave your employer, um, there should actually be an off boarding checklist say, hey, just, just full transparency, we are retaining the following information. It'll be retained for this a certain amount of period, and then after that period, here's how you'll know we'll have actually gotten rid of that data. So that at least if there is data that needs to be kept from a regulatory or from a legal perspective, that you actually have that transparency. Because like you said earlier, we have no idea what other employees are keep you know, employers have kept in the in the past as well. The the one thing we've noticed as well, you know, in the Indigo example, but it raises a bigger question for all employers are current and former employees should actually be treated the same after a data breach, right? We've seen certain communications gone out to Indigo current employees that hasn't gone to former employees. But I think since everyone's data has been affected, both sets of employees should be treated the same. And and I think, you know, one of the things I've noticed through all this and speaking to a lot of colleagues who really struggled with the mental toll of this, we need to actually put the mental health support in place. You know, credit monitoring that Indigo has offered up that's a starting point, but that's not enough. The mental toll that's taken in the last 10 days for a lot of individuals, there needs to be some paid mental health support that's in place, and that's for all employers going forward.
0: Did you get an apology?
3: No, we haven't heard anything beyond that. It's One, one email is all we've received so far. No other communications.
0: Wow. Have you heard from other Indigo employees?
3: Yeah, there's, there's been everything from employees who've been there for, who were there for 15 years who were affected, 20 years. And employees who worked there for two or three weeks over Christmas three years ago. So you've got employees who did a quick stint over a holiday period, worked in a store, and are now dealing with this the same way as employees who might have been there for for decades.
0: Wow. Do you think it's fair then to ask an employer or a potential employer, like if you're the person applying for the job, hey, what do you do with my information?
3: I think it's a great question. I think it actually begs that question. I think current employees should probably ask their employees, like, Hey, you know, can you tell me where this data is stored and how, how, how you're protecting it? And I think, you know, if you're going in the interview process as well, that would be something if you have a little bit of leverage in the interview process to ask that question, because it's something you'd want to expect. I think, you know, we talk a lot about like great workplaces and we have all these awards about great workplaces. I think increasingly as we start to see these, uh, these cyber attacks take place, especially on the employee data, data. I think you almost want to have like ratings for their standards across some of these awards around top employers, and top workplaces, actually take your, your personal data into, into account as well.
0: I think people would be surprised, Marcus, to find out what you pointed out, and that is the rules are different about customer data versus employee data. I, th- I think people would really be surprised by that.
3: And it varies. The other thing that, that, that's shocking is across provinces, it's also different between federally uh, regulated companies and provincially regulated companies. You know, Indigo is an Ontario corporation. So, again, rules are very different at the national, at the federally uh, regulated level. It just is a, it's just a bit of a hodgepodge. I think, I think uh, you know, Canadians probably, you know, can, you know, Canadian employees would probably expect to have some sort of standard that's global, that's across the board that they know that, okay, I know exactly what data is being stored, how it's being stored, and then what my rights are around that data, and actually then the destruction okay. or the, the removal of that data.
0: Well, now that you've all been with this and having to deal with the situation, Marcus, do you have any advice for people?
3: Um, yeah, yeah, I would say um, really ask your, ask your employer. Really hold them accountable. Um, if you are leaving a job, really ask the question around, what's my, where's my data, um, where is it being stored, and how will I know when it's being uh, being uh, uh, deleted. Um, why are you keeping certain data? So just making sure that you at, you're asking that HR team or whatever team that on exactly how your data is being uh, being stored or removed. And you know, it's I think part of it is also to realize that once you've once you've actually had your data breached too, is there's a there's a quick you're, you're, there's a whole range of emotions. So get you know buckle up. It's it's a range of emotions from from anger, confusion, and then the fear of what, what's happening to. But I think I think in the meantime, I think a lot that we can do is demanding of, of our employers as well as potential employers.
0: Good advice. Marcus, thank you.
3: Thank you so much.
0: That's Marcus Grupp. who's a former director of experience design at Indigo, current vice president, head of design at innovation at Syrian Lab. So he hasn't worked for Indigo for five years, but he's been caught up in this whole cyber attack uh, situation where all of his personal information got compromised. And I think the questions that he raises are such good ones, too. It's fair for you to ask, especially if you're having like an exit interview with a company, maybe you quit, you're on your way out the door, you're having the exit interview. It is 100% fair to ask at that point, hey, how are you going to delete my data from your system? I don't want it on your system anymore. How do you remove it? Uh, And maybe those are questions that we all need to ask of our employers, too. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.